0: This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Thank you, Anna. Let's, uh, Let's have a word of prayer before we jump into the text this morning. Father, we want to acknowledge and thank you that you are a good father, and you are a giver of gifts. And one of the gifts that you've given us is grace, and another is your word, and those two go together. And so I just pray this morning that as we approach your word, and that we could do so under the umbrella of your grace. Um, As you've already shown us in Hebrews earlier, we know that we can approach your throne of grace with confidence because of your love for us and your love for your son. Um, that is shared with us. So I just pray this morning as we approach this text, as we approach approach really a list of of things to be conscious of, to do, um, that we could do that, um, knowing that we are approaching that with grace, um, through your grace. And just as we sang this morning, um, Father, I pray that, that our souls would be satisfied, not in what we are capable of doing ourselves, but Jesus, what you have done. So, Father, it's in your son's name we pray, amen. So this morning I wanted to start with a quote um, from one of the commentators, and it's this. What we think about God has everything to do with our relationship to each other and with the world. It's Arkent Hughes. And I want to start with that to say, uh, we kind of touched on this. If you're at the members meeting on Wednesday, we kind of touched on the idea of one of the things I shared that was really impactful for me in Soma School was kind of this, this way of thinking about our identity through a list of questions. And the questions went like this, who is God? What has He done? Who are we? What do we do? And I wanna start with that this morning, kind of just, let's take a survey of what we've seen so far in this book, in this letter to the Hebrew church about, to answer those questions because I think when we come to a text like Hebrews 13, it's often the text that we want to skip ahead to in our Bibles. Oftentimes, I think we're driven by wanting to know, like, yes, I understand God, like, I understand grace. Like, what do I do? (laughs) I wanna know the things to do so I know I'm doing the right thing. I think that is often our approach um, when we're looking into scripture. And so today, I want to challenge that a little bit. I wanna challenge that in myself because I tend to do that the same, but I want us all to be challenged by that that idea that before we look at a list of things to do and do them, we need to understand that as Christians, as followers of Christ, that we gain our being not from doing, but by who God has called us, who God says that we are. So that our doing comes from our being, not the other way around. And so I just wanted to take a quick survey just to kind of answer some of those questions that we've looked at so far. So I think the first one, who is God, Um, I think, you know, at its most simplest answer, could say, well, we know that he's Trinitarian. We know that God is three in one. He's the Father, he is the Son, and he is the Spirit. And so I kinda wanna take just a couple examples for each of those of God's identities um, that we've talked about in Hebrews already. So when we answer uh, who is God with the Father, Son, Spirit, we need to ask, what does he do? What has he done? What is he doing? And I think first, if you start with the Father, um, some of the, and this, I could have like a huge list and we probably could have done a whole sermon just recapping <laughs> this stuff, but that's not what we're doing. Um, but just a few examples for each. Um, so one, starting in chapter two, um, talks about that Father has subjected creation to humanity. One of the things that he's done is, from the very beginning, we talked about this in our call to worship is God created everything and then he created man and he created woman. And one of the roles that he gave them was to have dominion over the creation, was to partner with him uh, and, sub, and having creation subject to them. Obviously we failed at that and that's why there's sin and there's brokenness in the world. Um, that is one of the things God has done. He has chosen to have humanity partner with him. Uh, another thing we see and you know, one example of this of many in Hebrews is that God speaks his will that we have this word, that we have this list of things we're gonna talk about of to-dos because God has spoken it to us. His word is his will revealed to us. Amen. And he, he talks, the author talks about that in Hebrews 4, when you know the, the kind of famous passage of uh, God's word is a double-edged sword. Um, but it's just the idea that God's word is spoken to us for our benefit. So God is a God who speaks. Um, another one is that... Uh, he treats us like family. We just talked about, Aaron just talked about this last week, um, that God treats us as sons, and that's why he disciplines us, and we kind of walk through that. Um, and so in the sense, God treats us like family. If he considers us sons, that means that he considers us family, his sons and daughters. And then you know, another one is that he raised Jesus to life, which we'll talk about that. It's kind of in the, in the benediction section that Anna just read for us. Um, just another reminder that it was God's power, God's will to raise Jesus to life. Um, so God is a, as a resurrector. He's a father. He's a speaker of his will. And he is someone who has invited us to partner with him. So let's talk about the son. The son is a servant. The son serves the father, talks about that. And again, in chapter two, when he's talking about this Creation being subject, it's talking about Christ coming and serving and doing the will of his father that was spoken to him. So Jesus is a servant. Uh, Jesus has made a new covenant. We've talked a lot about that and a lot about Jesus as being a high priest. Um, So specifically in chapter seven, it talks about him creating the new covenant and doing away with the old. Um, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The thing that we do and gather to do, Jesus Instigated, Jesus invites us into. Um, And then another one is that he mediates our covenant. So not only did he create the covenant, but he's actually mediating it. He's overseeing this covenant that he made. So those are some of the things that the son does. And then third, the spirit. Um, And there's obviously a lot of things the spirit does, but a couple of them are in chapter two, reminds us that uh, the spirit is a giver of gifts, that he equips the church to do the work, to join the father in his mission. Uh, he also unites the church. Chapter six talks about you know, um, don't be swayed by the elementary doctrines anymore. And he's talking about for you have shared in the spirit. So it's kind of the sense that um, as we grow up together towards each other as a church, it's the spirit who's uniting us in that. And then another one is he reveals the father. Part of, part of how God use, reveals his word to us is through his spirit in us. And the fourth one is that he bears witness. So the Spirit goes before the, the Son to bear witness about the Son uh, through his people um, in different ways. So those are obviously a really short list just in one book. <laughs> uh, that are some things that the Father and the Son and the Spirit do. And I want to point those out and for them not to be random because I think, like I said, when we ask first who God is and we ask what has he done, then we understand because of what he's done, because of what he's done in his son, we are informed of who we are. He's given us an identity in the things that he's done. And so one of the ways that we often talk about that at Emmaus, um, that we don't always talk about a lot, <laughs> but we wanna be talking about more, and we were kinda mentioned at the, at the members meeting is this, that because of who the father is and what he's done in treating us like family, we are a family. Um, If God is bringing people, drawing people to himself, calling us sons and daughters, then that means that all people under his name are a family. And that's one of the things that we want to identify with, that God has said that we are. Uh, Second thing is servants. So not only are we family, but we're also called to be servants. You know, if if part of what it means to be a Christian is to be like Jesus, to be a, a little Christ, as the word Christian suggests, um, then we do as he did, which is to serve others. Christ himself said, "I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And um, so we're called to the same thing. And we see that in the way that Jesus is mediating a covenant and he's ministering to the people. There's a lot of active things that Jesus is doing on our behalf that he's asking us to join in. You know, Peter says that we are a royal priesthood in the same way we are priests to the nations as Christ is our priest. And so we're servants. And then the third one is, and this is a little bit different word than what we've used in the past, but this is another summer school nugget for you guys. Um, but instead of missionaries, we're using the word ambassadors. And it's kind of the, the idea that, as we were saying, the Spirit is a witness, and the Spirit is a revealer. In a sense, the Spirit goes before us in our work. And so in the same way, we are, we are going out. We are witnessing who Christ is, and who he's, what He's done, and who He's calling us to be. So in the sense that we are ambassadors in a kingdom, in his kingdom that he's building. Um, so those are kind of three things to think about. So when we say, who is God? You know, he's the Father, He is the Son, and he's the Spirit. What has he done? Um, a lot of great things. <laughs> that is listed off, I won't list again. And then, so who has he made us to be? Well, one way that's a helpful way of thinking about that, that's not the be all, end all, is to say that, well, we're a family of servant ambassadors. Um, And so that's just a framework I want us to consider today. And again, I want us to consider that because I I think it's helpful to look at this passage, to look at the to-dos we're about to look at, and remember that we look at them not as a list to check off, to say, have I continued in brotherly love this week? Have I remembered my leaders? So on. To say, am I doing these things because of who Christ has called me to be? Am I continuing in brotherly love because they're my brothers, because I've been called into a family and to be a part of a family? Am I considering those in prison because I've been called to serve others? You know, am I considering and remembering Christ and what he's done for me because I'm called to go out and represent him to the world? So I hope, I, hope that's a helpful, I hope that's a helpful thing to consider it, and really a tool to use. Anytime we come to scripture and we come to a list like this, in Hebrews 13, to say, okay, remembering who I am because what Christ has done and who he is, I now understand better how and why I am to go about these things, (laughs) these asking us to do. Um, So with that, let's kind of, let's jump in and and here are kind of four helpful ways to break down this really long list of to-dos. So the first is kind of a group of to-dos that I would consider a call to continue in love. Uh, The second is, kind of a call to pursue contentment. But the third is that we are called to be rememberers, so we remember well. Um, and then the fourth is probably our favorite, obey our leaders. <laughs> and so we're gonna jump into that first uh, call to continue in love. Um, so in verse one, it says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, uh, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. So I think we could kind of break this down really um, in a way to say this: these first kind of three verses in continuing love are really kind of a, a call that the author is saying, remember, to be the church. Even in the face of persecution, um, even in the face of the challenges of the culture around you, remember to be the church. Continue in brotherly love. So that kind of first action is is that we have a call to love each other well as the church and to remember our identity as a family. I think the second is that we have a call to be hospitable. That's one of the ways that we not only love each other well, it's like our value, inward and outward love. We want to love each other well as a family, inwardly, but we also want to welcome others, bring others into that family, to have no strangers amongst us in a sense. And then the third kind of thing he's talking about is really um, care for those in the family. You should be concerned with injustice in the world, especially when it's happening to the people of your church. Um, There's obviously a call to to care for those in prison in general. But I think also he's specifically saying, you know, like think of Paul who's in and out of prison all the time or like the other apostles, care for those those brothers and sisters. Um, so what I just kind of want to, obviously those things are right there, but I want to kind of draw out where are some other places in scripture that inform us of those things? Those are kind of what he's saying. Because I think we could just read that at face value. It's like, okay, I will brotherly love people. (laughs) But maybe a little more direction than that might be helpful. Uh, So in 1 John 3, John says this. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So I think that is to say that you know, to continue in brotherly love is to continue in love through deed and truth, not just to say that, oh, like we're Christians, so we love each other. It's like actually love each other. <laughs> um, so what does it say about hospitality, about Christians being hospita- uh, hospitable? One example would be um, actually a mandate that was given even to the Jewish people all the way back in the law in Leviticus, Leviticus 19 says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So I think even from the very establishment of God's people, Israel, he was concerned with them being hospitable to people. They weren't supposed to just be a, a nation Uh, of exclusivity. They're supposed to be inclusive in who they cared for and loved. And we as the church are called to that same kind of hospitable calling. And I think a a really great example of caring for the suffering Christian, caring for those who suffer, uh, is really from Jesus himself. In Matthew 25, uh, Jesus is speaking of the kingdom and of him as the king. In 25, verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. That essentially what Jesus is saying here is um, treat everyone as if they were me. (laughs) what you would want to do for me as your king. Everyone in the kingdom is deserving of the same love and care. So I think, you know, practical examples, if you are helping somebody move today after church, like some of us are, if you are giving towards the Bridge of Hope moms this week, if you're simply providing a word of encouragement around a dinner table, those are ways that we're continuing in love, they we're continuing as a family, there's are ways that we're considering the least of these. And maybe sometimes we don't even realize it, but in doing those things, we are living out our identity. We're living out this call to continue in love. So next we talk about pursuing contentment, um, which I think is a very relevant topic for the consumeristic Western culture that we live in. <laughs> um, and one that kind of rubs against us. Um, But this kind of second section, verses four through six, are kind of this idea. You know, if the first section was kind of church ethics, how do we live out our identity as a church, then this is a little bit more personal, um, more individual. And it's talking about marriage, it's talking about money, it's talking about contentment. Um, And so first talking about marriage, it seems kind of random that, like this list seems kind of like thrown together, like at the end where it's like, so we're talking about love, okay. Now we're talking about marriage, but also money and also respecting your leaders. It's like he was just like all the things I like didn't get to because I was sharing the gospel with you the whole time. Like, hey, okay, like also do these things. Um, but I think there's a little more. Like at first glance, like that seems like a letter that I would write probably. But I think he had more intention than that. Um, but kind of looking at the first thing. Uh, so yeah, so the ethics of marriage, um, of sexual morality. You know, something that kind of speaks to this is is 1 Corinthians 6, which is, you know, we studied that back in the beginning of the year. But in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so I think it's, it's interesting to, to think about that, the, the language of being bought for the price and how much that relates to what we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews, that Christ, you know, last time I preached, talked about Christ's sacrifice. It was his own blood, that he purchased us, made his new covenant with his own blood. And that's significant. But then also he's addressing money. And one of the things I, I won't read the, the story, but one of the things that I, that came to my mind was the story of the rich young ruler where he comes to Jesus and he says like, I've, I've done all the right things. Like, what do I need to do to get into heaven? Like, is there another thing I should add to my list? And Jesus is basically like, well, you have a lot of stuff. Like, you should go sell all of it. Like, and then you'll be free to join my kingdom. And it says that he like walked away in sorrow because he had much. Um, and I think that's, you know, another thing is to say, like don't be a lover of money. Um, you know, I think those seem, maybe those things seem disconnected, sexual morality and money. But I think the, it's kind of being tie, tied together by the idea of the root. What is the root of those things? When we pursue sexual, sexually immoral things, when we pursue uh, consumerism, material, material gain, I think the root of those things is discontent, is that we want what we don't have. It's the idea of self-fulfillment. So I think what's happening here is really a charge for the church not to just stand out in the, the way they love each other well, to continue in love, but it's a charge to stand out as opposed to the, what the culture values around them. Now, he's, he's writing a letter to a Hebrew church in. Uh, a time where they are being occupied by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire who's very much known for like, very free sexuality <laughs> and no morals whatsoever there. And also, uh, they're an empire, so they're all about like, taking what's not theirs and like, having more of it. And so I, I think those are probably, as much as they were problems then, they're problems now. We're f- constantly being advertised to that we need more, that you need more, and that your life is about you. <laughs> I mean that's like the 101 of like advertisement, um, and so yeah. So I think that's kind of a stance. So it like seems disconnected at first, but I think it's really kind of getting at the root that as you continue as a church, as you remember what Christ has done, you remember who He is and who He's called you to be, stand apart as a light in your culture, both in how you love each other and exist as a church and your own, as you stand out as a Christian yourself, and what you value. And what you're content with. And uh, Aaron has really nerded out on this book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Um, And there's a really great quote he shared with me uh, that he's kind of the author, Jeremiah Burroughs, is talking about. He said, If I become content by having my desire satisfied, that is only self love. But when I'm contented with the hand of God and willing to be at his disposal, that comes from my love to God and he says this about contentment, what it really is. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Um, I just remember growing up that I, yeah, I can remember at an early age uh, definitely being susceptible to materialism. and things of that nature and not being content. And I remember every time I would talk about that, I would talk about my insecurity and like something I want or like wish that I was or like didn't have Um, with my dad. I always remember this like very vividly probably for the rest of my life. He would always say, "Well, your grandpa used to say, if you're always content with what you have, you'll always be content. And I feel like that's not as pretty as what Jeremiah Burroughs said. (laughs) But I love how like simple and like, down-to-earth that is and like really speaks to who my grandpa was um, as a pastor as well. But, yeah, I think the, the Christian call is that, to be content with what you have. Because our contentment isn't in like, a sexual fulfilling or materialistic fulfilling. It's in Christ and who he is and what he's done for us and who he's then called us to be. I think about Paul in Philippians when he says, I've learned... To be I've known plenty, I've known little, but I've learned to be content. Why? Because I can have strength through Christ. Christ gives me strength. So I think that's another thing to think about as we consider what it looks like to stand apart in the world and to live in identity as being a family of servant ambassadors. It's to stand apart and and where our content is, where our joy, our source of joy is coming from. Is it in the identity that we want for ourselves? or the things that we can put around us to give us identity, or is it through Christ? Let's remember that call. So the third uh, thing on this list is remembering well. I feel like that was the, my way of trying to summarize um, another kind of seemingly like random bit <laughs> of call to actions. Um, but I think we could divide it in a couple of ways. To re- One, we're called to remember our leaders, Called to remember Christ, who He is, to remember the gospel, what Christ has done, and to remember our worship. And um, so, I just want to first kind of address: remember your leaders. Um, so it says, "Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith." So I think it's it's actually kind of interesting. Um, the first six verses that we just kind of walk through, um, a lot of the things that the author of Hebrews is reminding the whole church of are actually like almost like word-for-word word specific to qualifications of elders and deacons. Um, like literally like in the requirements for deacons in 1 Timothy, it says like, don't love money. <laughs> it's like almost like exact phrase. And, and so I think it's interesting that You know, to kind of highlight that. He's saying, remember your leaders. Remember those um, who have spoken the word to you, the outcome of their life. Imitate that. And so I think what he's saying is, um, whether you're an elder, you're a deacon, or you are um, a member, or just, uh, yeah, coming to GC, whatever your relationship to Emmaus is, um, we are called to the same things. (laughs) You know, maybe, and we'll get get to this later on, that there's another level of responsibility in leadership, but I think, to an extent, um, the reason that the qualifications are oddly similar for leaders that was being spoken right now is because leaders are called to the utmost (laughs) of those things. Like, if anyone should be doing them well, if there's, like, anyone you can imitate, like, it should be your leaders. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I think that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, in, in another sense, remember those people who you saw live these things out well, who you can remember in your life, who've spoken truth over you. Maybe it's a mentor, or it's a parent, or a family member, or a neighbor, but remember those people who have invested in you. Recall those who are worth imitating. I think one of the greatest tools we've been given as Christians, and even Hebrews, this letter talks about, in chapter 11, is remembering those who have gone before us. Remembering that as we persevere through trials, that those, there are those who have gone before us that have done the same. Nothing's new under the sun, right? And so I think, yeah, it's an, and it's an appropriate call to as you can t- try to continue in love, as you try to continue um, in your contentment Remember those who showed you the way, who have done it well themselves, and imitate their faith. And I also want to say, you know, I think it's natural for us, especially as a mostly young church, to really uh, desire and long for some of those relationships that we've had in the past um, that maybe aren't as present because we're mostly peers um, here at Emmaus. Um, I just want to remind you that sometimes we are given those relationships and those are good and we should desire to have the Pauls in our life, but I don't want us to forget that like, we are called to have Timothys as well and maybe we can treasure and, and enjoy some of those relationships that we have of the people that we're remembering, but I think it's also a call to remember that we are called to grow up into those people that others would want to imitate. Um, and so just remember that, I know that, um, you know, even for myself, there are days that I, I long for older and wiser and uh, veteran Christians in our body, and I know, especially as a parent, <laughs> I think a lot of parents relate to that. I'm like, well, all of us have like our first kid, and like some of us are like having our second, but it's like we don't have a, a lot of parents like, help show us the way, as maybe other churches do. Um, but I think that there's a comfort in that, um, even though we don't have that now, um, there will be a day that as we continue to be faithful in the way that we love each other and love our families, um, that hopefully we will be <laughs> the ones that others down the line are remembering because we, and like, in spite of like some of those trials, we persevered. Um, so yeah, I just want to give that word of encouragement to you guys and also for myself. <laughs> I definitely need to hear that when Meva becomes more and more of a two-year-old. <laughs> Um, So yeah, so that's one of the remembers. I think the second remember, as I said, is remembering Christ, uh, who he is. And so that's kind of, uh, you know, I think people we look up to will come and go and seasons change, we just said that. Um, But right kind of smack dab in the middle of this passage, he randomly says, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever which is like a verse that I feel like gets like pulled out of this a lot and is like talked about a lot and is like a super comforting thing to acknowledge that Jesus is unchanging um, because I think the, you know, the only thing that we can really rely on to be consistent in our life is change. <laughs> like everything, you know, it's like, how many of you can say that your life was the same uh, in 2019 that it is today? Um, probably none of us. Um, Yeah, there's always gonna be change in life. And I think it is a comfort to know that Jesus is the same yesterday, that who he was and what he was going to do was set in stone. It wasn't gonna change. And he did accomplish it. And the work that he accomplished is playing itself out and will always play itself out. And I think that is a really comforting thing. And I think, in a sense, it is to remind us as we remember Uh, our leaders and we are persevering in our own trials and walking about in our own faith, um, that we do remember even when uh, the past (laughs) is gone, it's in the past, um, that we can remember that Christ is a constant in our lives. So whatever we've been through, whatever we're going through, whatever we will go through, Christ is the same and he's with us in his fullness all the way through every season, every trial. I think that is super comforting. And I think... You know, what has he done? What is what's the thing that Jesus did yesterday? Is he paid for our sin? Is that he gave us access to the Father? It's a lot of the things that we've been talking about in Hebrews. And what, he's, what is he doing today? He's mediating a new covenant. He's assuring us that as we continue to strive and continue in love, as we continue to pursue Christian contentment, as we continue to remember who he is and what he's done, he's constantly interceding on our behalf before the Father to preserve our faith. And yeah, what is it that he'll always do? What is the forever promise that we can look for in Christ? It's that, um, that his work doesn't just end. It wasn't just, it was finished on the cross in the sense of accomplishing the forgiveness of our sins, but the love and the joy us near to the Father that he's doing now and his access. He's given us as a high priest as something that will never cease. He will always be at the right hand of the Father, always bringing us into his presence. And that's something that we can delight in and have confidence in. And so then what has he done? There's kind of, um, I feel like these are like the verses that I um, had to think about the most because I feel like a lot of the other ones are like, maybe a little more obvious or applicable. Um, But in verse nine, kind of starting there, where he says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Um, I wasn't totally sure what to do with that, and then I kind of remembered, oh yeah, this this letter is called Hebrews, so, it's a Jewish audience. <laughs> and, like, what is one of the things that we know um, about the Jewish culture, about like the law, in Leviticus? So, there was strict and there was a lot of rules, right? And I think one of the things that we remember as Christians is that we are, we're freed from the law. We're freed from, like, right, the work of religion because we have the gospel, because we have grace. And so, really, what I think the author is saying here uh, to a Jewish audience in particular is, Don't continue in the old covenant. I spent a lot, remember, I spent a lot of time telling you how insignificant the old covenant is compared to the new. So don't continue in food. And I I think in a way to, as we even think about what we're, we're saying here about, you know, what I said in the beginning of the sermon that our being doesn't come from doing. I think that's kind of what he's saying here is like, your being doesn't come from eating the right foods and doing the right things. It comes through grace comes through receiving grace and living your identity out through that grace. We operate not by doing, but through what we've received. And I think in another sense, um, going on to verse 11, it says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, thank you, (laughs) have no right to eat. It says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And I think that, again, uh, is just another reminder of, of the old versus the new. So and kind of in a sense what we talked about, um, you know, in, in the, actually what I, last time I preached, uh, talking about the fact that there was a day of atonement and there was all this ritual that went into it and it was centered around the temple, centered around the tabernacle. Well, part of that was that they made the blood sacrifices in the temple, but then they threw the carcasses outside of the city. So, whereas in like Passover, part of it was actually eating of the sacrifice, eating the meat of the lamb. And on the day of atonement, it was knives. There was supposed to be the blood and then like you didn't benefit from the meat on that day. And uh, it's really interesting that what he's, what he's saying here is that, that Christ was sacrificed not in the temple. His sacrifice was outside the city. His sacrifice was on a hill called Golgotha on a cross. And so in that sense, we, when Christ calls us, what Christ calls us to is to remember, to partake of his blood, to partake of his body, and so, in a sense, I think again what he's saying is don't be stuck in the old way of doing things because they're not adequate. You have a better covenant. You not only get the sacrifice, but you get to partake of it. What Christ has done for you, um, you don't only get to live in that truth, but it nourishes you. And so, kind of all to wrap all that up in verse 15, he says. to God and so I think the last remember that we to do is to worship and it's the fact that our worship comes from remembering Christ we don't worship just to worship <laughs> to, as a to do we worship because we're responding worship is a response to something that Christ has done it's not something we muster up for ourselves to do and I think there's a There's a sense where he's saying that we should worship God, we should praise God, both in word and in deed. He says, the fruit of your lips is praise. So I think in a sense he's saying, the way you worship God and you speak about him is a witness to who God is. Every time we we sing songs and we ask God to be our vision, or or we're telling him, we're uh, proclaiming that we're beholding him. We are here to experience you, God. We behold you, your work. And since that's a testimony of what we want to do, of who God is, we're saying that to God, but we're also saying that to each other. And really, we're, when we come together and do this thing that a lot of people in our city don't do and don't value, it's a testimony to our city that we have a God who's worth worshiping and spending time together as a community to do. So in a sense, even our worship is a way that we are ambassadors. When you come here on a Sunday and you worship with your family, you're representing Christ to a world who doesn't value this. Amen. And do not neglect to do good. I think it's another way of saying, don't neglect to serve. <laughs> don't neglect to not be served, but to serve. And he says, share what you have. I think in a sense that's another call to be hospitable. We should continue in our hospitality. So, in a way, it's, we continue to be a family to each other and to those who aren't yet a part of our family. So, all that to say, true worship, what we should remember is that true worship is an outflow of who we are because of what God has done. So, now for the last, the final, and most fun obey our leaders. I think uh, this section um, is not as fun to us because I think we just don't like authority. Like if we're really honest, like the American spirit is like to rebel against authority, right? That's like literally how we became a nation. It's like, we're not gonna pay taxes. We're gonna throw your stuff into the, the bay and not let you come into our house and we get to carry guns. Yeah, um, yeah so I think when we, we come to this text, I think we need to remember, um, even with our presupposition to not uh, trust or like authority, that all Christians are called to submit to authority. Um, it's really, honestly, all over the New Testament. It's all over Jesus' words and the Gospels. It's all over Paul's words to the church, Peter's words to the church. In a sense, we are called not even just to submit to our leaders in the church, we're called to submit to the governing authorities, to give Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, There's a lot of examples that I'm not gonna go through a list of things again, for your sake. Um, But yeah, but all Christians in a sense are called to submit, not even to authority, like scripture says we're to submit to one another. In a sense, our posture as a family of servants is humility. It's just like, I'm okay to like, I'm okay to submit to others because ultimately my trust isn't just in the person that I'm submitting to, it's in Christ. It's in God who is sovereign, (laughs) who's in control. And so I think that's kind of the lens we need to look at this text with, and when he's saying to obey our leaders, and I guess in a sense too, like, if what Jesus and Paul and others are saying to submit to one another and to submit to authorities who are like, aren't even necessarily Christians, how much more should we, should we consider submitting to and respecting those who are in the church that God has given us? And I think the reason, one of the reasons that he gives us for that is this. So looking at the verse, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. And so I, th- I think of, uh, of Peter in his, his first letter. He's talking about elders, and he addresses himself as a fellow elder, and he says, Elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for a shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So I think one of the reasons that we should um, be particularly joyful in submitting to the leaders in the church, which I admit I say awkwardly because I'm a leader in the church. (laughs) So I guess take this with a grain of salt. (laughs) Um, Is that, you know, one, our call as leaders isn't to domineer, it's to care. The word for elder for overseer is shepherd pastor means to shepherd so I think in a sense saying like we should we should be more willing even more willing to trust people who have our best intentions at heart and I think obviously because there's sin in the world like I or Aaron or Cole or anyone else who's in leadership we don't always like do that you know like sometimes we fail at having the best intentions um or maybe our actions don't line up with our intentions. But I think to answer that, um, he also says that your leaders will give an account. So even when I or anyone else as a leader fail you, if we don't do the right thing, if we you know, treat you as people to run over with our bus, it's <laughs> for all you Marcel podcast people, um, if the church is doing that to you, um, the call doesn't say submit to your leaders when they're doing all the right things when they have your best interest at heart it says submit to them knowing that whether or not they fail whether or not they treat you well or not they give an account for how they have led you and you can trust them that more than making sure that they do the right things before you submit to them And I don't think that's something we love to hear. (laughs) But that's what's in the text. And you know, I remember, I feel like there's a lot of references to like my old sermons in this text, which is really weird. But in 1 Corinthians 3, one of the texts I got to preach on a while back, earlier in the year, um, he's kind of talking about, Paul talks about that. He says, you know, your leaders are ultimately, um, they submit to God and their work. And he uses the picture of, that all their work will be tested if it's founded on Christ. And it will be seen as gold, silver, and precious jewels, or hay and straw. And that work is gonna be revealed by fire. So in a sense, um, regardless of, of how well your leaders have served you, if they've always done the right things or not, which probably not. <laughs> um, ultimately, they answer to God. And I think there's honestly a comfort in that. Um, I think all of us have and one way or another, been hurt by somebody and authority over us, whether that is in the church, whether that's at work, whether that's a parent or a grandparent or, or someone. We've been hurt by people who, um, otherwise, we would want to say are the, the people that we respect and wanna imitate, right? And I think what God is, what Scott is saying here through the author of Hebrews is, even if those people fail you, um, he's still calling us to be faithful and to trust in him even when the people that have authority over us aren't always trustworthy. But then he also says, um, let them do this with joy <laughs> and not with groaning because it's of no advantage to you. And I think that's, again, just to say, um, yeah, I don't know how to say this other than if you make it really hard for your leaders to care for you, it's not of an advantage to you. Like, what what do you gain from, like, Making it hard for somebody to love you well. <laughs> you know, I think like all like anyone here who is ever a teenager knows what it's like to like make it hard for your parents to love you. <laughs> you know, like uh, I mean I was like an angsty teen, so maybe you aren't more, maybe you aren't like weren't angsty teens, but I was. And I kind of think about that. Like I probably like made it hard for my mom to like love me when I complained about helping with something or like just like wasn't there because I got a car and I could get whatever I want all of a sudden. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of the same in the church. Like if your pastors are called to care for you, to shepherd you and care over your souls, like make that a joy for them because that is an advantage to you. <laughs> to have a good relationship with your leaders and for them to have genuine joy in the way that they serve you, like, that's the only good thing for you as it is for them. Um, and I think in a sense, in that way, like, we are called to be unified as Christians. And part of that is that submissive, the back and forth of submitting to one another as we submit to our leaders. Like The reason God calls us to that is because it produces joy. And when it produces groaning, I think we need to evaluate why. So that's all I'm gonna say about that. So, we kinda went through all this, all these to-dos. I know that was a lot. Um, thanks for hanging in with me. But I think after all that, if we've gone through this whole book, and we've been talking about our confidence. What is our confidence? You know, why does everything we've been shown about God, who He is, what has He done through His Son, what has He empowered us to do by His Spirit to go and do what is our confidence to go and do that? Where is our confidence to actually like, take this list, take the applications we've been talking about, and do it? Even if, we, like, in, even if we get to a place where like, okay, I'm doing this out of my being, not just to like, do them to be a good Christian. Like, how do we have confidence to do those things knowing that it's not just gonna fall flat? And I think the benediction kind of gives us the answer to that. It's because God is the God of peace, that all things are being worked out for our good, to perfection. The same God who raised Jesus to life raises us to life, and in doing so, raising Christ to life enabled him to become our shepherd, our minister, our high priest. And in that covenant with the Father, he paid for it on our behalf by his blood, All that, so we could be equipped with everything we would ever need to accomplish his will. Everything we need to have confidence, everything we need to continue in love, to pursue contentment, to remember who Christ is and what he's done and to submit to each other and submit to our leaders. We've been equipped with that through his spirit in us temple of God. Our confidence, I think we said this a lot, but let me say it one last time. Our confidence is not in doing the things. It's in what Christ has done. It's not in perfectly going out from here and continuing in love every time and never failing. <laughs> we would have no confidence if we were called to do all those things perfectly. But we have confidence a mediator, we have a high priest who has obeyed the father perfectly, who submitted to his father's authority perfectly. We have a minister of a new covenant who perfectly loves us, who unites us to himself and unites us to his father, who's content. He, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And he did that perfectly. So, our confidence, again, is not in our doing. It's in what Christ has done. And praise be to the God of peace for making that possible through his Son. And I think we know that we can, again, as he said earlier in this passage, we can have confidence to go forward in that, to live in that truth. Because he said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And in mirroring those words that God said to his people, to Israel, Jesus said in his great commission before he left us and gave us his spirit to empower us to do his work, to live as God's family, to serve those around us and to represent him to the world, he said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. 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 So Emmaus, my prayer this morning, my hope this morning is that we, we see this list and we return to it and we return to the other one another's and other things that we've been called to do as followers of Christ. And we remember that our confidence is not just in doing those things, but remembering who God is, what he's done and who he's called you to be and that our confidence to go and to do and to praise his name and word and deed would be that we are resting in the truth of who Christ is, what he's done, and that he's with you always. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that would be true for my own heart. That when I measure myself, when my joy is stolen by comparison to those that I think do what I can or and I think I do more than others. Jesus, I just pray that you would convict me, that you would convict us as a church to not rest in, to not start with what we do and for our identity to flow from that. That is where our joy is stolen. Jesus, I pray that we would rest in what you have done on the cross, what you've done to provide a new covenant of grace, not of works, through your blood, and that we would say that we would truly believe that we can have confidence to represent you to the world, to love each other well, to meet the needs around us because you've invited us into that and you've done a better job and we will continue to do a better job than we could. And we can rest in that, that even if we're not enough, you are. So Jesus, we pray that in your name, amen.